Thank you, Amelia. If there are any kids who are still with us, uh, you can head on down to your classes now. Good morning, church family, both here and online. It's great to see the Laboos, right? After a year in which none of our global partners were able to travel and see us, the visit with the Laboos this weekend is the first of three visits that we are scheduled to enjoy with our global partners this summer. So, uh, Bethany, Stephen, grateful for your reminder of some of what God's doing around the world. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. What's in your past that you wouldn't have survived without the Lord's help? Like, what's something that happened that you doubt you would have made it through without God showing up to deliver you? Those of you who happen to have been with our family near a body of water know that without our help, our boys would not survive a single trip to the pool or to the beach. And before they could walk, they see water, they take a beeline to plunge themselves underneath. Uh, can they swim? No in lessons this summer, but up to now, they're not even close to being able to swim. So they dive in, we scramble to lift them out. They're gasping for air, and every once in a while, they'll catch their breath and say something like, Daddy, did I swim? Isn't that a picture of how we so often live the Christian life? We try to do something on our own strength that we literally don't have the ability to do. God rescues us, and we ask, did I do it? The poet who wrote today's psalm about 3,000 years ago, he's determined that in his relationship with God, he does not want to be the kid who gets rescued from drowning and then wonders if maybe he swam. He knows what would happen to him if help didn't show up. Would you turn with me to Psalm 124 if you haven't already? As you're turning there, you know, we, we don't actually know the backstory that caused David to write this psalm. God's people, we know, just got delivered from some sort of serious threat, but what sort of threat specifically? He doesn't say. But that's kind of the beauty of this psalm, and it's what's made it so useful for God's people for 3,000 years now. It applies to any number of situations, and there are many in which God's people are under threat, but then get delivered. If you've been with us at all during the month of June, you know we're spending this summer working through the Psalms of Ascent, they're called. These 15 songs that, God would, that God's people would sing during their three times a year journey to Jerusalem to gather together for worship. Now why does this particular song, Psalm 124, make the cut as one of the Psalms of Ascent? Maybe having heard it read just a moment ago, uh, you got an idea. You can imagine it. I, I, on the way to Jerusalem, as God's people would sing this song recounting a rescue, they'd almost certainly be reflecting on the reality that if God hadn't rescued them, they wouldn't even be able to make a pilgrimage like this one. So thank you, Amelia, for reading the psalm, and now we will explore it in depth. It breaks down in three parts, the first of which is significantly longer than the other two, 
We've got what could have happened, what happened instead, and what these events mean. The point of the psalm is placed at the end, so we'll be ready to zero in on a big idea then. Uh, but what could have happened, what happened instead, and what these events mean. First, what could have happened. Follow along with me as I reread the first five verses. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. So what could have happened, David recounts, we could have been swallowed up alive. Verse 3, swallowed being a common biblical metaphor for death. And if the swallowing wasn't vivid enough, he elaborates, it would have been like a flood. And he expresses that flood metaphor in three different ways for emphasis. Verses 4 and 5, the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Still, lest we think it's some sort of natural disaster maybe that the psalmist has in mind, uh, verse 2 specifies this threat is actually the result of enemies who rose up against God's people. Violent folks who are so filled with anger that they're attempting to destroy. Verse 3. The stringing together of these metaphors, one after the other, the repetition, they all create the sense that whoever this opponent was, was so big, so strong, so fierce, so determined to defeat God's people that God's people were left saying, there's nothing we can do. We're doomed. As I was thinking about modern day situations like that, I thought about how in this era of outrage in which we live, more and more people have experienced a social media-induced version of the doomed helplessness that this psalmist describes. Anybody remember the name Justine Sacco? Does that name sound familiar at all? Back in 2014, uh, she um, had... Uh, it was in London, about to get on a plane to South Africa, when satirically she tweeted this. Going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. She only had 170 followers. Didn't think anything of it. She tweeted out jokes like that regularly. Didn't think anything would come of it. But by the time she completed her 11-hour journey to South Africa, the world had collapsed on her without even realizing it. She was the number one worldwide trend on Twitter. Tens of thousands of people had condemned her tweet. Her employer had even issued a public statement about how despicable it was, what she had said, uh, all before she had landed. Her aunt met her at the airport, told her she had disgraced the family, but her aunt wasn't the only one. There were people at the airport taking pictures of her right when she got off the plane so that they could update the millions around the world who had been following this viral hashtag, Has Justine Landed Yet? She deleted her account as soon as she realized what had transpired during her flight, but too late, she was fired from her job. Her name became an international punchline. Now, was her tweet deserving of that response? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, uh, we could talk a whole, we spend a whole other sermon on accountability and, and shaming and all that. That's another conversation for another day. <clears throat> whether or not Ms. Sacco deserved it, we have seen many Justine Sacco's in the seven years since her life imploded, right? The social media mob 
has shown its ability to end a person's career and personal life with ruthless efficiency. And Ms. Sacco showed us that you don't have to be famous to be a target. So as, we've been, as we become familiar with so many stories like that of Justine Sacco, I wonder how many of us have at some point experienced some fear about when we might be swallowed up, to use the language of the psalm, right? when we might be swept away in the flood, like Justine Sacco was. Surveys of young people indicate high levels of anxiety around being targeted on social media. Can anybody relate to the fear, I wonder, of certain doom that the psalmist expresses in this psalm? Now, there's a question we haven't sought clarity on just yet. Who was doing this to David and to God's people? We literally have no idea. All David tells us is people rose up against us. Do you see that there? Uh, verse 3, or end of verse 2. People rose up against us. File that away. Uh, for later on because that language is going to create an important contrast later in the psalm. Whoever these threatening people were, no matter how powerful they may have been, to David, the most noteworthy thing about them in hindsight is that they're just people. Still though, though they're mere people, David does speak as though they had the power to swallow up God's people, to drag them under the waters of the flood if, if, God hadn't been on their side. If God hadn't been on their side. That, that raises a thorny question for me, maybe for you too, and it's this. Is God on anybody's side? Does God really take sides? When the last second field goal bounces off the upright and the winning players definitively declare in the post-game press conference that it was because God was on their side, is that really how it works? Is that, is that what David's doing here in this psalm? There's a sense in which God's on his own side, period. Right? Remember that wild passage in Joshua 5? We've preached it here before. Uh, when Joshua meets the commander of God's angel armies before a battle, and he asks the angel commander, hey, are you for us or are you for our enemies? You remember what the angel commander says? No. No passage like that reminds us there's an important sense in which God's on his own side and he's inviting us to get on his side but in another sense plenty of scriptures like Psalm 124 can talk about God being on the side of his people he's not equally loyal in other words to those in his family and those outside his family even the very name for him used four times in this passage the Lord that's the covenant name for him that's the name by which only his special people know him. Now, does he always help us win? No. Does he sometimes help us win? Yes. Does he ever act in a way that's contrary to our long-term flourishing? No. And it's in that sense that he's on our side. Even while in an equally important sense, we need to be ma make sure we're getting on his side. And you know, in those moments of victory, when his covenant love has moved him to uh, fight for our cause, we can't keep silent about it. It's so important that we express our gratitude for his deliverance, that we name it out loud 
together in the context of community like this one that we're gathered in this morning. That's why verse 1 calls not just for a private reflection, but for a corporate vocalizing of praise. Trace it back with me again in verse 1. David starts out, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, but then at the end of verse 1, he interrupts himself to point out, well, hey, this can't just be me saying this, guys. We need to declare this together. You see that there? He says, let Israel now say, and then he resumes again, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. See that? It's right. It's fitting. It's even necessary that we praise God out loud corporately for what he's done for us. And get ready, because we've made room at the end of today's service for a few people who might want to do just that. I'll offer this reflection on a church-wide level as we close out the first section of this text. In China today, churches like ours are being raided, pastors thrown in jail. Even up in Canada today, churches like ours are being raided, pastors thrown in jail. The only reason why North Suburban Church hasn't gotten something like the Justine Sacco treatment is that the Lord has seen fit, at least for this season, to protect us from that, to restrain the evil that wants to swallow us up. Even when we've been deserving of it, right? So just like the worshipers on the way to Jerusalem would sing this song so incredibly grateful, maybe thinking to themselves, Jerusalem still stands. Our enemies haven't torn down the temple. We're allowed to just freely enter the city and go up to worship. Praise God. We can do the same, actually, as, as, even as we get in our cars to come here on Sunday mornings. Like, you can praise God with your family on the drive here next week. Like, they haven't chained up the church doors yet, family. Right? They haven't subpoenaed Tim's sermon manuscripts yet. Praise God for giving us yet another week to gather without any of us getting fired from our jobs, thrown in jail for being attenders here. That's what could have happened. Now let's take a look at uh, what did happen instead. Verses 6 and 7. What did happen instead. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. So what did happen instead of getting swallowed up? God's people escaped. Not because they fought their way out, but because God broke them out. Do you notice that? It doesn't say we broke the snare, but rather the snare was broken. Verse 7. That's because the Almighty God was the one who did the breaking. Here's an ancient depiction of a fowler's snare in an ancient kind of engraving. So here are the fowlers, people who catch birds. Here's the snare, something like a snare that they would have used. There's the birds that are caught inside. David says, We are the birds who have escaped. Verse 7, so we didn't end up prey for their teeth. Verse 6. Here's the thing, though, and maybe this is just me. Uh, but when I read something like this, language like verses 6 and 7, my first thought is, that's great for you, David. But what about others among God's people who have gotten swallowed up over the centuries? What about times when God seemingly has given his people over as prey? Right? I mean, Christians are being killed for their faith every day around the world. How does this psalm offer any real hope? Like, specifically, how do we know whether we're the ones who are going to be rescued, like David was rescued, or 
whether we're the ones who are going to be given over to death, like the martyrs were. I found a quote in which Augustine, North African theologian, church father, right around the turn of the 5th century, he speaks to this very question. Augustine's preaching a sermon. He's preaching this sermon at a location where a Christian martyr had been killed for his faith sometime before. So they go back to the location of the, of the death, and they're having a little church service there, and Augustine's preaching on this psalm, Psalm 124. Here's what he says. When the blessed martyr shed his blood in this place, I don't know whether there was a big, such a big crowd here raging against him, as there now is a multitude of people praising him. But even if there was, blessed is the Lord who has not given us as a quarry to their teeth. I guess quarry means prey. Didn't know that word before. When they killed, they imagined they had conquered. They were being conquered by the people who were dying. So, the raging crowd has departed and the praising multitude has taken its place. Let them say, let them say, the praising multitude, blessed is the Lord who has not given us as a quarry to their teeth. That's the thing to remember. If one of us, even in this room today, should one day happen to have the honor of dying for our faith, for ease of understanding, I'll just make it first person. If the Lord has chosen that I will have the privilege of dying for him one day, the enemies who kill me will not have won. No matter how it looks on the surface, I won't have been given up as prey for their teeth. Tertullian said it centuries ago, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There are good odds that a future generation will hold a worship service at the site where I was killed in that situation. So, we give God praise this morning for not allowing his people to be gnashed in our enemy's teeth. Just as David interrupts his string of metaphors one after another to break out in praise to God at the beginning of verse 6, he just breaks out in it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We praise him like that. That he has often delivered us from the attacks of our enemies, but we also praise him that even when he occasionally does allow some of us believers to be handed over to our enemies, he will never allow us to become their prey in the most ultimate sense. He will preserve his own for eternity and he won't let our faith fail even if our flesh and hearts do give way. In other words, in the most important sense, we will escape, always, just as God's people did in the events that inspired this psalm. So now that we've seen what could have happened, we've seen what happened instead, let's talk about what these events mean, finally, verse 8, what these events mean. Here's the summary verse. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Some of you maybe have been tuned into the NBA playoffs Imagine, imagine watching a basketball game in which half of the players on each team were invisible. Just imagine that for a second. That's almost exactly what it's like to try to understand the events taking place in the world around us without any acknowledgement of the spiritual realm. The Bible from cover to cover envisions two realities. One that can be touched and seen with our five senses and another taking place in the spiritual realm, normally invisible to us, yet exercising significant influence on the people 
the places and the events of the natural realm, this psalm picks up that very dynamic. And on the surface, anyone who's watching the events that David describes in Psalm 124, the ones he's remembering, they would conclude, okay, there were just two groups of people who were enemies. One attacked the other, and the second one won, meaning that they escaped from the first. Simple as that. But David in this psalm opens our eyes to the invisible. To David, this was never actually or never really a battle between God's people versus the nations as much as it was a battle between the Lord himself and sinful humankind. Let me show you where I'm getting that. I remember I asked you to file away that use of the word people in verse 2. It's the word Adam, Adam, humankind. So who are the adversaries attacking God's people like this? Humankind. And who does Adam, Adam, sinful humankind, find himself fighting against? Well, verse 8 says it's not just other humans, but rather the Lord. The Lord who made heaven and earth. To state the obvious, those opponents are not equally matched. Not when the invisible is accounted for. On one side you have the created, on the other side, you have the creator. That's good news for us who have aligned ourselves with the creator in the great cosmic battle of world history between God and Adam, sinful humanity. Church family, we may think we've got enemies out there. But the Lord knows cable news, our social media algorithms are working hard to convince all of us that there's a them out there who are trying to get us in here. May we not embrace that narrative at the expense of seeing with spiritual eyes the invisible yet far more significant battle happening behind the scenes. And the outcome of that invisible battle, that more significant battle, is certain. The teams are unevenly matched. The one for us is infinitely greater than all those opposed to us put together. Those on the right side of history when the last of the dust settles will be those who are aligned with him. So our big idea today is this. Because God has shown himself to be the only one who can deliver us, let's praise him for being our help. Because God has shown himself in the past to be the only one who can deliver us, let's praise him in the present for being our help. You know, when my kids need rescuing from the water and I pull them out, I don't really find myself annoyed. I'm also not really miffed at their failure to give me credit for saving them afterwards. It's just what I want to do. It's what a dad does. Did you know that when God first pulled you out from underwater, he was delighted to save you? It wasn't an annoyance to him. And guess what? Next time you sin and you turn back to him gasping for air and reaching for help, he'll be delighted to save you again. When he pulls us out, let's praise him for how he saved us, whether it was big or a seemingly small rescue. We can't close out this psalm well without filling in one missing piece. Remember in the first two verses that twice David speaks of the Lord being on our side. Why is the Lord on our side anyway? Why is that? Like, how did that come about that of all the sides he could have been on, the Lord is on our side? those of us who belong to him. 
there's a hint in the language itself, actually. Catch this. The phrase that's translated in our Bibles, on our side, was on our side. That phrase is just the past tense of the word Emmanuel. God with us. That's the name that Isaiah said Messiah, the Savior, would one day be called. Emmanuel. For that reason, Tim Keller makes the case that David, he couldn't even answer the question of why God is on our side as fully as we can answer it on this side of the cross. On this side of the cross, we can see now that it's only because of Emmanuel, God with us, that our sins don't result in condemnation. It's only because Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place and because he brought us to new life with him. That when he rose from the dead, that the words of Romans 8 are true. Those words that are familiar to some of you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those two little words, in Christ, they change everything about our eternity. Once we are in Christ, the maker of heaven and earth now exercises his infinite power on our behalf, just as he has always exercised his infinite power on behalf of his son. In other words, he's now on our side because he's always been on Christ's side, and we are now in Christ. If you don't know Jesus, have you prepared yourself for what you're going to do on the day when medicine and wealth and therapists and family all let you down? When you reach out to them for help, but they fail you? If you're trying to do life without God on your side, you're putting yourself in the situation of the toddler who jumps into the pool and just hopes against hope that he'll make it to the other side somehow. If you're here this morning and you do have a relationship with Jesus, you've seen him show up in the past. Based on that past work, let's praise him today and trust him tomorrow. I want to conclude by leading us in a hymn written a few centuries ago that I think perfectly captures the message of this psalm and gives us an opportunity to praise God today for what he's done in the past. You might uh, recognize the melody once we start, uh, as De Debbie will get us started here. And uh, if you'd stand with me and just join uh, as you pick it up and as you're able. If you, if you grab the hymnal on the way, it's number 52, but the words will be up on the screen.